Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Thanks for joining us. We know that in this podcast, the sound quality is pretty poor. My microphone was off, and we're really sorry. We still think it's worth it to post it, even though the sound quality is not the best. And we hope that you stick with us and, and get through it. We get this fixed in future episodes. We just had some technical difficulties here on this one. So once again, we apologize, and uh, thanks for listening. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to talk about Revelation 12. Which is a wonderful journey all the way back to the pre-mortal life, into our current lives, and all the way up through the millennium. This is a major piece of the puzzle, and we introduce two major players in this drama, the woman clothed in the sun and the great red dragon. And one of the major messages that we're going to talk about today is we kicked him out. We've kicked him out before. We've won this victory. We could do it again. And all we have to do is do what we did in the pre-mortal life. So we'll take a look at that. How did we kick him out in pre-mortal life and what do we need to do today? But first, let's talk about the woman clothed in the sun and the great red dragon. This woman is a major part of the book of Revelation as well as our individual lives. She is a major part player in our lives, and all of us have to face the dragon. And I know dragon lore is as old as literature, and how many great pieces of literature talk about conquering a dragon. And I know Mike's kind of an expert on that, so we're going to start with Mike. Talk to us about the dragon, conquering the dragon, Mike, and then we'll talk about the woman and the wilderness, and then how we kicked out Satan in the pre-mortal life. Okay, well, the dragon, I mean, how do you talk about the dragon without talking about uh, the Hobbit? You got to talk about the Hobbit. That's right, so, smog. Yeah, you got you to get into this. So I love the story of the Hobbit. And Tolkien is borrowing this from really old stuff. He's borrowing it from, uh, well, ancient Near Eastern literature. It's, it's everywhere. And the dragon is in uh, Canaanite literature with the, it's called the Veil Cycle. Uh, it's in Enuma Elish, which a lot of uh, scholars say influenced the authorship of the, of the book of Genesis. In Enuma Elish, you have Marduk defeating the Chaos Dragon. Uh, her name's Tiamat. And from that, eventually comes men and the creation. And Tiamat is split. And the earth is made. And the heavens are made. And there's creation. Uh, we have the Chaos Dragon in Egyptian lore. We have creation uh, drama and battle with the chaos monster, and the chaos monster is going to be called Leviathan all throughout the Psalms and in Isaiah and repeated through the Exodus motif. In the Exodus literature, God splits the sea as a mighty warrior, and we'll put some of that in the show notes. And so you got Psalm 89, Yahweh rules over the surging sea, which is in, in Hebrew, the sea is yam. Well, in Canaanite literature, Yam is a chaos monster that fights Baal. Baal is like the uh, Jehovah character. And so uh, Baal does battle with Yam and also Mot, which is death. And so this battle, this motif is all over the place. And so we we could go and talk about this a lot, but just know that this is there. And so in the Hymn of the Pearl, there's a young man who comes from the heavens. His heavenly mother and heavenly father sent him to earth. And he has to get this pearl and he loses his way and he kind of falls in the, in the case with some ruffians and he kind of forgets who he is. And so the, the 
father and mother from the heavens, they sent a messenger to him to remind him who he is and to send him on his way to find the pearl. Well, he remembers and he goes to go find the pearl and he's doing all the good things, but the pearl is in the clutches, the talons of a sleeping red dragon. And so he has to sneak and snatch the pearl from the dragon. And so to me, Bryce, all of these stories with the dragon, it represents our mortal journey. And a lot of the stories, the dragon is in the sea. And the sea, once again, is chaos. And it's all the vicissitudes of life. And so that's a really short a short summation of this. There's entire books about this. Uh, there's one by Bernard Bado and another one by a guy by the name of John Day. And a ton, like I said, a ton of Old Testament scholarship on this motif that Yahweh is fighting the dragon. And we see it in the New Testament as well with Jesus walking on water and crushing the head of the serpent. I mean, think about Genesis 1, right? Jesus is going to have power to crush the head of the serpent with his atonement. So that's good stuff. Major, major theme is the dragon. So let's jump into the text. Now, when we do Revelation chapter 12, we need to turn to the JST. Joseph Smith changes the order of so many verses, and he adds so many great truths that every verse has changed. So if you'll make sure when you read Revelation chapter 12, um, I'd strongly encourage you to you know jump into the JST. So every every verse that we quote, Mike and I quote today, is going to be out of the JST version. So make sure you get that note. But, you know, I just want to point out in verse four that there appeared another sign in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Um. So let's talk a little bit about that. How is Satan like a seven-headed red dragon? Why why seven heads, Mike? Why why seven heads? I know seven is the symbol of whole or complete. God completed his work in 7 days. We often say sometimes that seven is perfection and that doesn't seem to fit with a seven-headed red dragon. Satan isn't perfect, but he's perfectly evil. He's whole, he's complete. And not only that, but how do you how do you kill a seven-headed dragon? So you cut one head off and you still have to deal with it. And that's so intriguing because so often we try to defeat evil where it surfaces in our lives, not in our heart. And so any other thoughts on either why it's red or why it's a seven-headed dragon, Mike? I think it's like copying holiness. We're back to this idea that John is saying there's dualism there. He's wearing diadems. He's wearing crowns. He has authority. In the next chapter, when we do Revelation 13, I don't know when we're going to do that, but uh, he'll give power or authority to other beasts that obey him, just like the Father has given power and authority to the Lamb of God. So this dragon is going to be like the counterpart of the Father, and he's also going to be, like I said, the chief imitation, but Seven Shiva completion. That's it's pretty intense. And and, and John's using this image on purpose. And red. I mean, Jesus wears red because he's taken upon us all of our sins. Our sins were red. He and then they become like wool or they are scarlet and then they become like snow. And so Jesus now wears red in chapter 19. When Jesus appears, he will be wearing red. And so it's it's interesting that the dragon is red because he's trying to imitate it. I'm trying to be Christ. He's a false version of Christ. You remember in 
Moses chapter one, where God appears and says, you're my son. And he feels his glory. And then Satan appears and almost throws a little tizzy fit because Moses won't worship him. I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. Yeah, I'm the man. And, you know, and so that's what this great red seven headed dragon is, is Lucifer. And he is in our life. And, you know, when, if you're going to defeat a seven headed dragon, you've got to go to the heart. You cannot defeat evil where it surfaces, where it shows its face, because every time you identify one face of evil, all of a sudden he's going to come back and bite you another way. You've got to go right to the heart to kill a seven headed dragon. But this dragon is after a woman. And by the way, the Revelation 12 doesn't really tell you who the woman is, but the Joseph Smith translation. That's does. right. We've, this is important, isn't it? It is. We've got to have that verse eight of the JST to know who this woman is, because this woman is a major player in every one of our lives. So, Mike, tell us about the woman. She is. So I, this is JST of Revelation, chapter 12, verse one. She is clothed in the sun, standing on the moon and stars on her head. This woman is filled with light. Light. She is filled with light. Her clothing is light. On her head are stars. And if you want to just see her personified in so many ways, go to the Nauvoo Temple or pull out a picture of a Nauvoo Temple or even the Salt Lake Temple. You'll notice on both temples, suns, moons, and stars. And we always think, oh, that points to the three degrees of glory, celestial, terrestrial, and celestial. And certainly there is a reference to that. But if you look closely, the order is wrong. It's most pronounced on the Nauvoo Temple. Stars are at the top. The sun is in the middle and the moon is at the bottom. Those moon stones are very pronounced at the bottom. So why would it go sun or stars, sun, moon on the temple? It's because the temple is the woman. The church is the woman. You know, she's going to have a baby. And she's pregnant. So she's so vulnerable. I, I, what an image of a dragon who wants to consume a, a woman with child. To me, when you see a woman who's with child, you just think she needs protection. That's right. She to be made safe. That's right. So this is, I, I really think John's trying to pull your heart. Yeah. So this woman now, according to verse eight is. Oh, she's the church. Verse seven, the dragon. Sorry, I keep saying eight. You're good. The dragon prevailed not against Michael, neither the child nor the woman, which was the church of God. So so we're going to go with woman being the church as a good image. Yeah. And we see that all throughout the scriptures, you know, that Jesus, the bridegroom, the, the 10 virgins is a parable about a bridegroom who's coming to get married. Well, there's the woman. So this woman is portrayed throughout the scriptures as Jesus's wife. The church and Jesus are married symbolically, and they're trying to give birth to a child, which is, Mike? Well, the child's going to be the uh, kingdom of God that basically the adversary wants to, if you read in verse 4, kill the baby after it was born, or maybe even before. But it's this idea that the woman, the church, is going to give birth to the political kingdom of God on the earth, the kingdom of God that will rule during the thousand years of peace. So in a sense, Bryce, I think what we read here in Revelation 12 is this massive vision where if you stretch your hands out to both sides, we're going all the way back into pre-earth life and we're reaching all the way out into the future. It's this chapter that just encapsulates everything. And it's this war that began long ago. It's going on now. And he's trying to stop God's kingdom from 
grasping and taking over the earth. Do you think that's a good interpretation? That's a great interpretation. And the child, the kingdom of God that the child is trying to bring forth, we have a name for it. In the church, we often, there's a sacred name for it. Sometimes we use it too flippantly, too casually, but the name is Zion. The church and Jesus are having a baby. And they're trying to bring forth Zion. Now, Zion is a state of mind. It's a state of heart. It's where no one goes hungry. It's where we live in peace one with another. We're trying to bring forth Zion. How many times has that woman tried to give birth to Zion? We did it in Enoch's day. We did it, tried to do it in Jesus's day. The Nephites tried to do it. Joseph Smith tried to do it. And the only time we'll truly be successful is when we ourselves, our hearts are pure and so whatever time period you live in, in your life, Jesus is trying to bring forth Zion and make you a Zion person. And yet the dragon is trying to destroy that. The dragon is trying to prevent the church from bringing forth the kingdom of God. And nothing, nothing could be more descriptive of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints right now in 2019, 2020, where the church is trying to bring forth a Zion people pure of heart, in tune, rejoicing without iniquity. And the dragon is doing everything he can to prevent that church from bringing forth that child. I like that, how you talked about it's the church, but then you made it personal where it's also me. I I think that if we read scripture that way, Bryce, and I'm so glad how you do that, how you take it and you say, hey, this is big picture stuff, but then let's make it personal. So in a sense, look at the end of the, the chapter. The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. In other words, I think what John's saying is, no, he's out. He's not your friend. He's out to get you specifically. And so we can read it on a personal level as well, can't we? Yep. He's trying to destroy you, which kind of leads us to let's do what I think is one of the major messages of chapter 12 to give us a message of hope. Hey, we've kicked this dragon out. We've won this victory before. We can do it. So big picture, we as a people, as a church, as a society can kick him out. But small picture, you as an individual, you as a family, you as a couple, you and your spouse can kick him out of your marriage. You can kick him out of your home. Your ward can kick him out of your ward. And we as a people can kick him out of our society if we do what what we did once when we dwelt in heaven and we kicked him out. So now we're going to look at um, there was war in heaven. Verse six, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought against Michael and the dragon prevailed not. There's a lot of reasons why the dragon can't prevail, but one of them is because they turn on each other and we are going to be united in our fight. But when the dragon doesn't prevail, Verse 8, neither was their place found in heaven for the great dragon. And brothers and sisters, I think that right there is a sermon worth a thousand thoughts. We kicked him out by not making a place for him to dwell. You will kick him out of your marriage when you don't give him room in your marriage to dwell. You will kick him out of your life when you don't give him room in your thoughts and in your heart. We give him room. We make a place for him. And as long as we do that, he's never going to go anywhere. 
there's a wonderful verse in the Book of Mormon, First Nephi chapter 22, verse 26, which is a fascinating insight as to how we will kick him out during the millennium. Nephi writes, so First Nephi 22, 26, and because of the righteousness of his people, Satan has no power. Wherefore, he cannot be loose for the space of many years, for he hath no power over the hearts of the people, for they dwell in righteousness. Now, it's probably true that something someone will physically bind him and kick him out of our presence. But the reality is we've done that long before. We stopped making room for him in our hearts. Therefore, he left. He didn't have a place to stay. And so I think what one of the major messages of Revelation is don't make room for him. Don't make room for him in your life. Don't make room for him in your thoughts. Every time you let his manner of thinking into your head, you make room for him. Give him no place. Give him no place in your marriage. Don't let your spouse or yourself give room for Satan in your marriage. And then we kick him out. We kick him out of our homes. That's what we did in premortal life is we made no room for him. I like that. I like the the verse in Alma 13 where it talked about, Alma says, I want to cite your minds forward, which is kind of a weird way of thinking because in the West we think forward is in the future, but in his thinking it's the past. Cite your minds forward to the time when you exercise exceedingly great faith in Christ. And I really believe that's another big part of this kicking him out is having faith in Christ. And what verse is it? Right? 11. It talks about, is it 11? 11. Like, I'm going to read verse 11. It says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their own lives, but kept the testimony even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and ye that dwell in them. One of, the, one of my readings of this verse is that it's in our testimonies of Christ that we can overcome him. I really do believe that I, of myself, don't have that ability. I say things in my prayers such as, Heavenly Father, help me to endure, help me to overcome. I think as soon as we take the approach that, oh, I can do this, or I can lick this, or I can conquer Satan on my own, I think we, we cut the, the cord that ties us to the power. And so the power in my in my witness of this concept that Bryce is talking about is it's because of Christ. It's because he's great. He's he's glorious. And so I like both images. I like Ephi's image where they bind him by their righteousness. But I like in the Revelation text where it says a strong and mighty angel with a key locked him away. Because I kind of see salvation as working in both in both um, avenues. It's It's us, but it's also God. It's this divine harmony, as it were. And so I just love that. And I also, I want to just uh, invite you listeners to think about just that phrase in verse 11, where it says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. There's something to be said about just a pure and simple testimony about just sharing what you know and what you feel. And I believe that when we do that, we help each other out. There's great strength in that. I love the imagery of get light into your life and that will repel darkness. Not one time in my life have I ever turned off the darkness. There's no light switch on my wall that turns off darkness or turns on darkness. We don't do that. We control the darkness with light. And so the idea here is get light into your life. Mark yourself with Jesus. He is the one that will give us power over the darkness. We will overcome him when we get light into our life and make no room. There's a great parable in the New Testament about a group of devils that were kicked out of their home. 
And yet no one filled the home with any other new furniture. They left it vacant. They left it unswept and ungarnished. And so the devils just got stronger and came back and dwelt where they were kicked out. And sometimes we do that in our lives. We kick out a bad habit. We make no room for Satan. We kick a bad habit out, but we don't take any thought to replace that and fill that void with something else. Well, that's where that bad habit grew. It's comfortable there. It's going to go rushing right back and it's going to be stronger this time. So we've got to make sure we fill our lives with light, fill our lives with the Savior. It's the blood of the lamb that kept the destroying angel away in Egypt. And the same thing's going to happen in our day. It's the blood of the lamb that will keep the angel away. So great message. We've kicked him out before. We can kick him out again as long as we fill our lives with the atonement and make no room for him. Let's talk about wilderness for a minute. It talks about that the woman flees into the wilderness in verse 14 of the Joseph Smith translation. And it talks about that she's nourished for a time and times and half a time. Um, The book of Revelation in this chapter talks about the time period being 1,203 score days. But in the Joseph Smith translation, Joseph changes that to years. And so something's going on here, Bryce, with this wilderness experience. Something's happening. Um, I just want to read section five of the Doctrine and Covenants, just just one verse. Section five, verse 14 reads, And to none else will I grant this power to receive this same testimony among this generation in this the beginning of the rising up and the coming forth of my church out of the wilderness. Clear as the moon, fair as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. So we're back to that solar imagery that Bryce talked about with the moon and the sun. And then we're also talking about it coming out of the wilderness. Um, In the ancient Near East, when groups of people felt like they were being persecuted or there was corruption, they would go into the wilderness to find peace with God. So you have the Essenes in Christ's day that left, and they lived in the wilderness, and they lived in a communal experience where they would read the scriptures and practice holiness, which is not unlike what Lehi does when Lehi leaves. Uh, he takes off with, there's a group of people anciently known as the Rechabites. They're doing some of the same things. Um, I think in one sense, John's saying, hey, the church is going to continue, but it's going to continue elsewhere. In other words, it's not going to be seen. It's not going to be manifest. What do you do, Bryce, with the 1,203 score? In other words, 1,260 days or years, or what do you take with that? Well, notice all of those are kind of a three and a half. So 1,260 days is three and a half years. Um, 42 months is three and a half years. And so you'll also have three and a half. So time, times, and half a time are three and a half times. And so the symbol of three and a half seems to be a good work cut short. So if seven, you know, God completed the earth in seven days, well, half of that would be cut in half, you know, so his work got cut short. But this this assumption on almost always when it's three and a half is that don't worry, it's going to come back. So the chapter 11, the two that die in the streets of Jerusalem, their dead bodies lie there for three and a half days, as if to say, hey, their work got cut short, but don't worry, it's going to be completed. And the fact that Joseph changes it from days to years seems to suggest that this good work that got cut short is going to be paused for a long period of time. The apostasy was thousand plus years. 
And so the idea here is what Jesus started in his day, in the Meridian day, in John's day, the good work that Jesus started in John's day is going to get cut short. And it's going to be a long time, but don't worry, it will complete. We, brothers and sisters, are the culmination of that good work cut short. We are picking up after the apostasy, and we're going to build Zion. And so I think the change from days to years is meant to say, look, this is a long pause, but this good work, this the woman went into the wilderness for a long time. But she will come back and she will give birth to that child. Zion will be established. The dragon can't stop it. May have had a victory for a time period, but not ultimately. Yeah, I like that. There's a lot of people that look at this and try to find out on a timeline, Bryce, you know, how do I make this literal 1,260 years? And I'm certainly not going to do that in this podcast. There's there's some work that I did put in the notes by Donald Perry, where he approaches this number and he's delicate with it, but he looks some different ways that it can work. I like your take on this, Bryce, of, hey, this is a long time. Uh, and I, I like what President Nelson says, where he's like, hey, the, the restoration is still happening. We still have stuff that we've got to do. And so it's an ongoing thing. But what I like about it is the church is on the earth and it's growing, it's living. And one of the things in this is where it talks about um, she leaves and she goes into wilderness. And in Revelation 12, not in the JST, but in the King James, it says, um, to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle and she might fly into the wilderness, into her place. And then the phrase, and I know you like this, where it says, where she is nourished for a time. What do you do with that idea of her being nourished while she's in the wilderness? I love that. The, the, again, that's repeated that the woman is what's so in JST 12, 5 and 14. I can't help but notice that there's an emphasis put that the woman flees into the wilderness and is nourished, is fed there. She was taken care of. Now, there is a fascinating cross-reference in the Book of Mormon in the allegory of the tame and the wild olive tree. This is Jacob chapter 5. Now, Jacob chapter 5 can be seen as a history of the house of Israel, where it goes through a New Testament time period and then falls into an apostasy, and then there's a restoration. And when they're in that apostasy period, in Jacob chapter 5, when all the fruit has gone bad, there's this beautiful little scene in verse 34. The servant said unto the master, Behold, because thou didst graft in the branches of the wild olive tree, they have nourished the roots, that they are alive, and they have not perished. Wherefore thou beholds that they are yet good. Brothers and sisters, the church didn't die in the apostasy. The woman didn't die. The roots of the gospel didn't die. They were kept alive. They were nourished. I would submit to the whole world that there is no way we would have had a Bible had the woman died. There's no way we would have founded America on religious moral principles if the woman had died. The roots of the gospel survived the apostasy and the darkness. There's no way we would have had a Reformation. There's no way we would have had a John Calvin or a Wesley or a Martin Luther who were led and fought for righteousness if the woman died. The woman didn't die. And I love that idea that the woman went into the woman, which is the church of God, went into the wilderness and was fed there. 
Now, if I may, and I don't mean to offend anyone, and I pray that this will just be taken as a positive, but for those of you who have ever watched someone you love leave the church, may I suggest there is truth in that. You cannot kill a testimony. You can't. You cannot kill a testimony. The roots are yet alive. I remind you of Korahor in the Book of Mormon, who fought so much against the church. He was such an antichrist, and he taught so much against Christ. And yet at the very end, you all remember what he said? I always knew that there was a God. Korahor said that. I always knew that there was a God. Joseph Fielding Smith said, when a man has the manifestation from the Holy Ghost, it leaves an indelible impression upon his soul, one that is not easily erased. It is spirit speaking to spirit, and it comes with convincing force. A manifestation of an angel or even the Son of God himself would impress the eye and mind and eventually become dimmed. But the impressions of the Holy Ghost sink deeper into the soul and are more difficult to erase. And then on another occasion, he wrote, through the Holy Ghost, the truth is woven into the very fiber and sinews of the body so that it cannot be forgotten. You hold on to hope. People who walk away from the truth, that testimony is not dead. The roots are yet alive. And given the right circumstances, they can rebuild, they can regrow, and that tree can be strong. But I love that example that the woman was fed in the wilderness. She was nourished in the wilderness, and the roots did not die. I think that's a beautiful message for Latter-day Saints who need hope. I also like the wilderness as a metaphor for the spirit world. The saints, especially the martyrs, they're in the spirit world, and they're they're nourished, and there's they're waiting for the restoration. And so the wilderness can have lots of different uh, meanings, but it's, it's a beautiful uh, text in Revelation 12, but it's also very violent. The serpent's for real and he's out to get us. And, and I love how Bryce has talked about how it's the testimony of the lamb. It's knowing who he is. And it's also knowing who he is. I think one of the adversary's roles, we'll see this later when we do the Book of Mormon, one of the things that he tries to do is to say that he doesn't exist. Hey, if he can convince you that that there really is no evil or that he doesn't exist, uh, he wins. Another one is sometimes he tries to pin you down and make you lose hope. And that's really in verse 10 of the King James, where it says, where the accuser of the brethren is cast down. In Hebrew, though, the phrase ha-satan is the Satan. It literally means the accuser. And so the Old Testament's kind of difficult because in the Old Testament, um, the Hasetan is a character in the court. So if, if Bryce was a king and we were in the king's court, uh, there would be a queen and there would be uh, nobles and rulers and princes and there would be advisors. Bryce wouldn't want to rule by himself. And then there would also be a member of the court called the Hasetan. And he was actually a servant of the king. And so let's say I was that, the Hasetan, I was the accuser anciently. I would come to Bryce and say, hey, did you know that this guy was poaching deer in your field, in your forest? And I would bring him before the king and I would accuse him in front of the king. And so that idea, the the word Satan literally comes out of ancient Near Eastern uh, culture, this idea of the accuser. We have it today, right, when we have the prosecuting attorney that takes you before the state and says, I caught you speeding, Bryce. You were going 10 over the 
the speed limit, and so you have to pay a fine. Well, that's also his role. He accuses us, and I don't know about you listeners, but there have been times when I'm just just buried under, man, I'm falling short. And I think there's a healthy balance between that and just approaching the Lord and saying, help me. And I think if, if we're buried under this accusation and it just it immobilizes us into this state of despair, I think he wins. And so let that be just the name Satan, like the accuser of the brother. And I, I find that fascinating. Let that be an invitation for all of us not to be buried in fear or hesitation. I have a friend who feels like, oh, can I come back to church? Am I good enough? And my answer is it doesn't even matter because Jesus is good enough. That's the answer. It's not about us. And so if you're listening right now and you're feeling that feeling of, am I good enough? Don't worry about it. Just cry unto Jesus. Read Alma 36, man. Read that three times and you'll and you'll feel that it's going to be okay. So a great message of hope. It does end with, uh, like I said, this war. And we're back to Genesis, right? He will have power to crush your head. And it's real and it's happening. So that's 12. When we get back next time, we'll see a little bit more of this when we get to 13 and we talk about how the dragon's going to, He's going to mess some things up and he's going to. And he has helpers. He has beasts and harlots. And yeah. So with that, uh, we thank you for listening. See you next time.